All right, I, I have a few comments uh, on last week's lesson. Uh, and that was where Jesus prayed to the Father that his glory be restored so that God would share in that glory, that God, God would be glorified. And so we talked about the pre-incarnate glory that, God, that Jesus himself had. And we know that, that the Godhead had this glory. Uh, and we talked about some of those issues. I showed you that at the uh, creation of the world in Genesis, that what you saw is that in Genesis chapter 3, that the world was lit, lit, light was created, and yet the sun was not created until day 4. And so the question becomes, is if this, the creation was lit, if this world was lit, how was it lit when the sun was not created? Well, it was created by the Shekinah glory of God. Uh, and this is a big deal to understand. That's how profound the, the uh, light is from the glory of God. Um, and one of the evidence of that, again, is found in Exodus chapter 34. Let's just turn there as I kind of wrap up some of the issues that I spoke about last week. Exodus 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands that the Lord had given him on, on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking, this is verse 33 to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak out with him, he removed the veil until he came out. What a picture this is. If you want to understand how powerful it is to be in the presence of God, you see the Shekinah glory of God was so profound that it actually lit up, radiated from Moses' face. And we know that when he was up there speaking with God, that for 40 days and 40 nights, he neither ate nor drank. You want to see what it's like to be within the presence of God. All right? And he comes down, and his face is like the most brilliant light. And people can't even look at his face. And he has to put a veil on. And so what a, what a profound example of the Shekinah glory of God that is. I want you to turn also to Revelation chapter 1. Again, to get an understanding of the power of the Shekinah glory of God. What this is, what Jesus gave up when he came to this world, when he gave it up. Look at Revelation chapter 1 verse 12. And this is John having a vision of what heaven will be like. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The son of man is Jesus Christ. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. How about that? His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and the voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a double-edged sword. His face was like the sun 
shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. And the congregation said, amen. amen. So what a picture that is of the Shekinah glory of God. This is the God who you serve. This is what Jesus has. This is what he had before he came to this world, incarnate in flesh. This is what he gave up uh, so that he could serve God for the purpose that God wanted him to be. And so you understand this. Uh, and, and I want you also to look, if you would, uh, understand what it's going to be like when, when the new Jerusalem is established because you understand how, why we study scripture, because God foretells what will take place. Look at Revelation chapter 22. And this is an example of the new Jerusalem, and you know that the new Jerusalem will effectively be this world. But this world, uh, in those last days when Jesus comes back uh, and ultimate justice is carved out, uh, and we will all come back in that uh, second coming with Jesus on this world. This world will turn into the new Jerusalem. It will be recreated. And I want you to see how it will be recreated. Look at verse 5. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. So if you wondered when you read that, how could that be? This must just be a metaphorical uh, example uh, of, of the Spirit of God. It's not a metaphorical example. Because if you go back and read the creation account, and you understand what the creation account is telling us, you understood that there was no sun, and yet this world was lit. It was lit to such an example that the plant life all of those examples that, grew, that, that were created between day two and day four were growing because of the light of Shekinah glory of God. And then God put the sun in the sky, and he put the stars in the sky. But it had already been lit by the Shekinah power of God. And so you see that in the last days when the new Jerusalem is created, that the new Jerusalem will be lit in the same way. Uh, incredibly powerful understanding to me of, of what God will do and how important this is. And there have been people who have seen the Shekinah glory of God in this world turn. We know that St. Paul did on the road to Damascus. The light was so powerful that he was blinded for three days as he came face to face with Jesus. Look also, if you would, at Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. And this is Stephen now being murdered, uh, and the stones are raining down upon him, and I want you to see uh, what takes place. Uh, this is right after he gives one of the most magnificent sermons ever given uh, in terms of the word of God. In verse 54, that's Acts chapter 7, verse 54. When they heard this, this is those people that were with the Sanhedrin, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him, but Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Can you imagine what that had to be like? And even as the blows are raining down, as death is raining down, he is so transfixed by the glory of God that it removes him almost from the pain that he's suffering. God is taking away that pain, even as they rain death upon him. And so you understand how, how magnificent this glory of God is. What is it, what, how profound it is. And why Jesus is saying, God, return the glory, return the glory that I had so that the world will be, uh, understand who you are. Look lastly at Luke chapter 9, verse 28. And this is the Mount Transfiguration. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up into a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were, companions were very sleepy, <laughs> really. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Can you imagine again what this had to be like? They were very sleepy. I don't care how sleepy you are. <laughs> are you kidding me? Moses uh, and Elijah speaking to Jesus. It's almost like they're sharing notes. I know, Jesus, I know you're going to be coming shortly. I can imagine what that's like. And yet appearing in his transcendent, glorified state, something that you would never, ever forget. And so this is the point of what we're studying How Why Jesus made that prayer, Lord, return that glory to me, because in that glory, it testifies to you. The world understands when it sees that glory how great you are. And here's the thing. When you understand what took place in Bethlehem at that manger, what a magnificent gift from God that God himself would put all this aside, all this aside and come back to this world knowing that this world would refuse to accept him and would persecute him and would ultimately murder him in the most ignominious of ways and put him on that cross. And yet God himself loved you so much that he bankrupted heaven and sent his only son here to serve us in that way. This is the message we have to give to the world, all right? When you understand how great this message is and when you convey it uh, with the passion that it should be uh, conveyed, the world will begin to understand what a great God we serve, how, how, how lucky we are, and, and how he can make these prayers in such a poignant way. And so I hope that lesson has been drilled home to you. I want you now to look at the outline for the new lesson. Um, this is John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 6. And Jesus, John chapter, I'm sorry, John 17. Please excuse me. John 17, verse 6. Uh, and Jesus now, he already made the first part of his prayer to God. This is the continuing prayer of Jesus to God. I told you that this has often been called by theologians the real Lord's Prayer, where the Lord's Prayer that we study is often really more appropriately called the Disciples' Prayer. But now you're seeing, you're getting a front row seat of how God prays to God what Jesus' heart was. So here it is, John 17, verse 6. 
This is Jesus now. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. Okay? And verse 8, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. And so you see this prayer from Jesus now focusing again on the disciples and honoring God for, for what God has done through Jesus to the disciples. His prayer is never selfish. Jesus couldn't even pray in a selfish way. It's always seeking the glory of God so that God will be glorified. Uh, and so uh, this verse 6 says four things about Christ's disciples. First, they are God's. Second, God has given them to Jesus. Third, Jesus has made God known to them. And fourth, they have received or kept up the revelation. The importance of this sequence uh, that is repeated in the experience of every single one that comes to God through Jesus Christ is critical. It's this sequence that really underscores what salvation is about. So let's unpack this. First, we are God's. We are the property of God. He has created us. He can do with us as he likes. Uh, and that is important to understand. That's why we pray, Lord, in your perfect will. We come to understand the sovereign will of God, meaning we don't understand everything. We have limited perspective. We can see 50 feet down the road, maybe. And God sees eternity. And there are all these things going on in our lives that we can't put our arms around. We don't understand it. Lord, why am I going through this pain? Why am I going through this suffering? Why am I suffering this sickness? And the answer is, I don't know. But you are a child of God. He owns you. You have given him your life. And you have to have trust that he has your best interests uh, in his perspective. And so this is important. Second, we are given to Jesus. God the Father gave us to Jesus. Third, the gospel is made known to us by Jesus through his Holy Spirit. We know the gospel of Jesus Christ because God has written it uh, through the Holy Spirit, through Jesus uh, in the Bible. And so we have come to understand the gospel because it's through the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who has anointed our heart, anointed our mind, and, speak, and speaks to us about the truth of God. And that's how we understand what God wants us to do. Finally, we receive this teaching. Our response comes last in this sequence. And so understand this. I've just given you the sequence of salvation. Uh, God owns you. He gives you to Jesus. Jesus gives you the word through the Holy Spirit. You come to accept the word, and that's your acceptance is at the end of this, of this string of ideas that I've just given you, and that becomes the essence of salvation. Now, and understand this, uh, 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 God owns everything that exists. It's all his. And so let's understand, what does he mean? What does, what does Jesus mean when he said, you gave them to me? They are yours. Uh, and I want you to understand the terminology that you will sometimes hear, and it's an appropriate 
theological terminology, and I want to make sure I nail this down because this is really misunderstood. It's a terminology called election. Election. You are the elect. All right? What does that mean? Let's, let's understand what that means. What does election mean? Well, turn, to, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. And we know, verse 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. One of my very favorite verses. That should be on everyone's refrigerator. Verse 29, and here's the election. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, we have well-meaning brethren in other denominations, which I'm not going to discuss, who believe in what we call Reformed theology. And Reformed theology says that God predestines and predetermines those who will be saved and those who will not be saved. Now, you are intelligent people. Do you read these verses to say that? Because when I read these verses, what is the, what is the principal essence of these verses? The principal essence of these verses is for knowledge, right? For knowledge. This is critical. For knowledge. For those God foreknew, he predestined. In other words, before the predestination, there comes first for knowledge. This is critical. If you don't learn anything else from today's lesson, I hope I drill this home. What does that mean? Here's what foreknowledge means. It means, and I don't fully understand how this is, but at the time that God created you, all right, at the very time you're created in that pre-embryonic state, all right, it's as if God looks at that mass and he holds that mass and in his sovereign creative gift of, of knowing the entire universe, he looks at that mass in which he has given free will he has given free will, and he sees in that mass whether you will accept Jesus Christ or whether you will reject Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? That he looks and he knows ahead of time of your whole life what you will do. It's because he's God. And so everything relates first to foreknowledge. This is important. Why is this important? Because it means when we go out and speak to the world, we're speaking to people who still have free will. God didn't create you without free will. God didn't say that only 50% of you can come to Jesus Christ. He said that all of you, for God so loved the world that what? Whosoever. What does whosoever mean? Is it a limitation? It has no limitation. It's unlimited. There's no ceiling. And so let's make this crystal clear, all right? This is a bedrock position of our theology, 
There is no class of elect and non-elect. Okay? You got that? All right? Uh, and when we, we elevate ourselves to the elect, we are the elect. All right? All it means is that God knew ahead of time what we were going to do. He pours grace into your life, allowing you with that grace to reach your arms up and to accept Jesus Christ. You didn't even come to salvation on your own. It was through the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's why foreknowledge comes first, followed by effectively predestination. Have I made that clear? This is a big deal. All right? This is a big deal. Now, I don't normally really make a, a line in the sand uh, on denominational differences. I, I mean, I really, I don't do this. But this is a critical issue. It's a critical issue. Uh, and there's some really well-meaning people who, who don't understand this. And why is this important? It's important because this. If I believe that God has predestined who's going to be saved and who's not, why am I going to Africa? Why am I going to India? Why do I have missions? Hey, this is missions weekend. Let's close the whole thing down. God's already predestined it, right? You understand that? But that's not the case. That's not the case, and that's why you need to understand this issue. This is a critical issue so that you understand it. Yes, you have come to Christ because God poured his grace into your heart, allowing you to recognize that you needed a savior. Yes, he saw you in your pre-embryonic state, all right? But he saw what you would do. And because of the decision that you would make, he would accommodate that and lift you up and then predestine you to be elect because of that. But your election didn't come because of the predestination. Your election came because of God's foreknowledge, his foreknowledge. So this is important. I'm sorry if you think I'm over-exaggerating it, but honestly, you, you cannot properly put our salvation into its proper perspective unless you know that. Every single person that is created has the free will to come to God. God doesn't close the door on anybody. He always leaves the door open, and, and it's all about free will, understanding that. And so this is this important issue. And so you see Jesus saying this, that the first step in this sequence of coming to salvation and Jesus is acknowledging and thanking God, the first sequence is, is the giving of God's word, which Je Jesus indicates, I gave them the words you gave me. What you're seeing here, the words of Jesus have been given to him by God the Father. And so he gave Jesus these words. And the word is the only way that fallen mankind can come to salvation. It is through the word only. It's not about drama. Uh, it's not about music. It's not about motion, emotion. All those things have its place. Uh, nobody loves music more than I do. But understand this. You come to salvation by the word of God. It's the word, and Jesus is acknowledging here that God himself, God himself gave that word. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 as you come to terms with understanding this. Hebrews chapter 4. This was one of my father's favorite verses. Hebrews chapter 4, 
verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul uh, and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is covered, uncovered, and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You understand that God's word is alive? I don't care that you're reading words that were written 2,000 years ago. When you read those words inspired by the Holy Spirit, your heart should be vibrating. When you hear what I'm saying this morning, you should have in your heart going, amen, amen, I believe it, he's right. This is all part of the ongoing, active, alive word of God. It is the word of God that caused you to be saved because you were convicted when you heard this word. God caused that conviction to, put, to be put in your heart. He then pours grace into your heart to recognize I'm lost, Father. I need a Savior. And it's at that point that the blood of Jesus Christ pours into you and the Holy Spirit is sealing your heart and you are saved forever and ever. You understand this process. Never, never really, uh, never minimize this process. It all starts because of the word of God. Look also at 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of uh, not born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And so you see this. It's the word of God that causes us to, to be effectively, causes us uh, to be born again and allows us to be born again. Listen, folks, it's quarter to nine in the morning. You ever wonder how a guy can get up here and, and speak the way I'm speaking, with the passion that I'm speaking, uh, and, and talk about these subjects. Do you ever wonder and say, wait, what, what is he drinking? What's in that? What's in that? There must be some Zoom juice of some sort. I need to get a hold of that. Let me tell you, folks, if you see me coming to church, you'd wonder how I could walk into the building. All right? I'm tired. I don't sleep right. Uh, on Saturday night. I never sleep right. I basically get up at four o'clock in the morning because it weighs on my heart that I have this responsibility to God to teach you and feed you. It weighs heavily. But here's the thing. When I get up here and I say, God, I'm yours. Give me the words you want them to hear. All I'm telling you, it's not me. It's him. It's him. Okay. Don't look at me. It's him. And this is what he says, and as you submit yourself to God, as you bow in submission to God, God will use you, all right, in ways you will never, ever understand. It is so profound. And so you see here, Jesus is thanking God that God has received him uh, and allowed him uh, to be used and, that he's, and, and use the words. And so it's so important. The second step in this sequence in verse 8 in this section of reading is receiving God's word, receiving the word. The word in verse 8 means to get it, to understand it, to apply it, to submit to it. It's all those things connected. To obey his word is much more than merely hearing it. Listen, 
I could give a sermon or, or a discourse on the same subject, and if it's not inspired by the Holy Spirit, nobody will actually accept it into their hearts and obey it and submit it. They'll understand it in their head, they'll remember it intellectually, but it will have no change in their lives. It is when through the Holy Spirit that you hear the word, you accept the word, and you receive the word. And it's that receiving of the word in which there is an incredible difference. That receiving of the word sinks down into the mind and heart and becomes the very basis of who we are in our meditation, in our thought process. It is the way that God communicates with us. All right? This is how God communicates with us as you receive that word. Third, Jesus now makes another point. It involves believing in faith as to what we have heard, believing, accepting it, and now believing it. Jesus taught this explicitly when he dealt with Martha just before he raised Lazarus from the dead. And I love that passage so much. Uh, And and, uh, Jesus said, and let's take a look at that. Look at John chapter 11. Verse 38, Jesus once more deeply moved. This is now his friend has died. He's there, he's looking at the tomb. Came to the tomb. It was, a, it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he says. But Lord, now remember this. This is a person who has accepted Jesus Christ, who believes he is the son of God. But listen to what Martha said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Oh, Jesus, don't do it. Lord, you don't know what you're doing. This is a big mistake. It's a big mistake. You see, this is how we do. We make God like this big. This big. And I'm telling you right now to those people here who are suffering some sickness and illness, I want you to know your God is gigantic. Don't marginalize your God. And Martha made this, oh, don't, Jesus, no, no. It's four days. Don't you know science? Don't you know the laws of physics? It's gone. It's going to be an awful stink. I don't want to smell it. Lord, stop. Don't do it. Did I replay that good enough for you? (laughs) Verse 40. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, you see the difference? It's not seeing is believing. Right? That's what the world tells you. Seeing is believing. I'm from Missouri. If I see it, I will believe it. No, Jesus doesn't tell you that. He reverses it, and he gives you the kingdom of God. Believing is seeing. Do you believe? Do you accept? Do you trust? Do you put it in your heart? Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Now, you got to love Jesus. That's the kind of prayer I want you to be able to make. Even before it comes to fruition, you make your prayers. And then you say, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have heard me. I believe that you have heard me. I may not understand the answer. I may not come to terms with the answer, but I know, Father, you love me and you have heard me. Verse 42, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus is going, God, God, 
I'm not saying this be, be, between you and me. You know where I stand, but I want all these bystanders to understand what they are about to see. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out and his hand and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Then Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. One of the famous theologians made a point that always resonated with me. And he said that at this moment, if Jesus had merely said, arise from the grave and had not really pinpointed for Lazarus, the entire cemetery would have come out. <laughs> the entire cemetery would have come out. Arise from the grave. But Jesus understood he had a pinpointed. Lazarus, <laughs> Lazarus, come out. And so if you have any doubt about the power of God, about the power of the word, about the glory of God, you are seeing it all ensconced here in Jesus in these verses as he inspires us and teaches us about what it means to be affiliated with him, the power that he has given us, the vision that he's given us, that we have a responsibility to give to the world. That's why I spent that time on understanding the theology. It's your, your authority to go and speak to other people about who Jesus is, all right? And let the, the, the power of God, the glory of God radiate from your face, Radiate from your face so that when people see you or with you, they want to be with you. I love to be with that sister. That woman is great. I love that guy. He's great. He inspires me. He affirms me. It is because the power of God is ensconced in your heart. And let it radiate every more. We'll continue this next week. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this lesson. I thank you for the words you've given us. Lord, I say, Father, please let it resonate this week in our hearts. Be with our people. Protect them in everything that they do, Lord. Give them the courage to talk about you to all their friends and, the, and acquaintances. And Lord, bless them and bring them back next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you.